This morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 11. And we're continuing our Advent series this morning. We've been following the Common Revised Lectionary. And last week that had us considering Matthew chapter 3 and John the Baptist. And again, we're going to consider John the Baptist, but a little, little later on, further along. Um, and last week we looked at John the Baptist and his ministry, which was preparing the people's hearts for the coming Messiah. But what's shocking as we come to our text this morning is that when the Messiah finally shows up, when he's finally onto the scene, people reject him. People looked at him and were disappointed. People were unimpressed. They were confused and even offended by him. So much so that even John the Baptist, who at this point is probably the most devout follower of Jesus to this point, even he doubts Jesus in the passage that we're about to read. Um, it's a lot like the premise of that TV show, Ted Lasso. Ted is an American football coach, uh, college football coach, and he gets hired to coach a professional English soccer team. So he's actually hired as a joke. Um, and so you could tell, like, this is not going to go well. Um, his hire offends the whole team. It offends the whole fan base. Basically, everybody's like, this guy? Like, this, this goofy American with a goofy mustache who knows nothing about soccer has become our coach. Like, we don't, we don't want this guy. But what they don't realize is that Ted Lasso is actually a great coach. He's a great guy. And he's actually very loving and he's patient, and he genuinely wants to draw out of each player their very best. He wants their, their flourishing out of every player. And he cares more about just winning. He wants to rebuild the whole culture, which had gone toxic. And yet, the players and the fan base, they're so disappointed. They're so disappointed that they miss how good of a coach he actually is. And, but, but one by one, over the course of the season, after a long time, they finally put down their expectations, and they see him for who he truly is, and they actually end up getting behind him and seeing his heart because they can see that their heart for him is so good and so pure. So Jesus' advent, his first coming, is, is a lot like that. He's the hero who's finally arrived, yet he doesn't fit their expectations. And even John the Baptist, who our passage will affirm, Jesus himself will affirm that he's the greatest man. There's no man who has arisen that's greater than John. And even John doubts. Even the best man is a man at best, plagued with sin. So if he doubted, if John doubted, then it's safe to say that the Bible anticipates that you too will wrestle and struggle with doubt and despair in your life. And that's because we're far more broken. We're far more sinful than we think. And so our passage is going to function for us like a mirror. It's going to be a mirror to our sinful hearts. But it's also going to be a spotlight to our warm, tender-hearted, kind, and gentle Savior and what his advent is truly about. So let's now read our passage. But before we do that, let's ask for the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have together, we pray that uh, your word would light our hearts, that you would fill us with hope, that we would not put our trust in ourselves or in anything else, but we would be, have our faith renewed and strengthened by looking 
in gazing at your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God, it stands forever. I hope you see that your Bible is eager to put before you the unexpected Jesus. He's unexpected in one sense because he doesn't match our expectations. He's not the the Messiah that we would expect. And that's not on him. That's, That's more on us. That's not his problem. That's more our problem. And so even John the Baptist, who, if you consider his life, before he was even born, when he was in his mother's womb, he heard Mary's voice, and it says he leapt with joy. And an angel testifies that he was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was in the womb. And he witnessed the baptism of Jesus, which is to say he witnessed the Trinity. He, He heard the Father's voice from heaven say, this is my son. And he saw the Spirit descend upon Jesus. And so experience wise, like all this put together, like John has an amazing resume, but even he is perplexed by Jesus in this passage. Why? Well, we'll get in later to specific reasons why John is doubting. But first, we need to see that all his doubts and all of our doubts stem from Genesis chapter 3. Because at the heart of that first sin that we find in Genesis chapter 3, is, the heart of it is this. Can I trust God to look after my best interest? Can I trust God to look after my best interest or do I need to take control myself? Do I need to take the reins? And from that moment on, we all show up in this world automatically assuming that we know better than God how to run our lives. So Jesus is the unexpected Messiah, but he's unexpected in another sense. We might expect the Messiah, when he's confronted with this doubt that John has, to be embarrassed by John, to be offended by John, to be ashamed of John in his doubt, or to give John a scolding. I don't know what you would expect, but this is John's most embarrassing moment. It's his most vulnerable moment, and it's written on the pages for us to see, for everyone to read. But surprisingly, Jesus is not shocked by John's sin, by John's doubt. He doesn't despise John. 
but he actually loves John. He moves towards John in his weakest moment in grace and in kindness, and he helps John out of the ditch that he's in. So here's the main point that I want us all to consider together this morning. Though your sin may be more pervasive than you think, beholding Jesus' word and work strengthens your faith. Beholding Jesus' word and work strengthens your faith. We'll look at that under two sections that we get from Scripture before us. It's, we'll look first at John's doubt, and then we'll look secondly at Jesus' reply. So first, let's consider John's doubt. So look with me again in verses 2 and 3. It says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So this is how it went down. John is in prison. He heard a report about Jesus' ministry, and he interpreted it in such a way that it led him to doubt if Jesus really was the Messiah. So why is John doubting? I believe it's a combination of two things going on at the same time. His expectations are off, and his circumstances are discouraging. So first, let's look at that first point. His expectations are off. Because if you look back at Matthew chapter 3, the sermon that John preached in Matthew chapter 3, you'll notice that there are multiple references to fire and judgment when, when John speaks about the coming of the Messiah. In one hand, the Messiah figure, John says, has an axe, and he's sizing up the tree that isn't bearing fruit, and he's ready to throw it into the fire. And in the other hand, this Messiah figure has a winnowing fork, and he's separating the righteous from the wicked. He's separating the wheat from the chaff. And John says he's going to burn, this Messiah figure is going to burn the chaff in unquenchable fire. John says that he himself, John, baptizes with water, but this Messiah figure who is to come will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. So lots of fire imagery going on in John's presentation of the Messiah. And so I want want to say John is not wrong here. He is a true prophet. Jesus affirms that in this passage. But these things that John is describing are more true about Jesus' second coming rather than his first. And so John didn't understand that the Messiah comes first not to wield the sword of judgment, not to dish out judgment, but to bear it, to bear the sword of judgment, to take the sword of judgment for his people. John assumed that God's redemption act through the Messiah would be a one-act drama. Like John would have thought, okay, the Messiah shows up, Uh, He tosses out the religious hypocrites that are running the show in in Jerusalem. He overthrows the oppressive Roman Empire. And he begins his reign, his kingdom in Israel. And so that's why John is just in prison scratching his head at the report that he gets about Jesus. He's like, what? There's no progress against the Pharisees? There's no progress against Rome? He's just teaching and healing people in Galilee? Like, that would be the the American equivalent of, like, just doing mercy ministry in northern Idaho. It's like, way off the map, like, like, what are you doing, Jesus? So, that's why he says, are you the one? Or should we expect another? So, John's expectations were off 
because he underestimated the pervasiveness of sin. John underestimated the pervasiveness of sin and he underestimated the depths of God's grace. Because if you think about it, if the Messiah had come first to dish out judgment, we'd all perish. For we all have sinned and deserved his wrath, deserve God's wrath. But Jesus came first to deal with our deepest problem, and that is your sin, your condemnation, your inability to survive God's wrath, your inability to produce a perfect righteousness. So far from being weak and insignificant, Jesus is actually taking the battle to the heart of the problem. He's taking on sin and death. He's invading this corrupt kingdom of this world that's ruled by Satan, that's enslaved to sin, and he's making, as our kids sang this morning, he's making his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He's overturning the results of sin and death in this world, and he's displaying that in Galilee. He's displaying that to the blind, to the deaf, to the poor, to the least of these, and he's showing them and the world that his kingdom is accessible to anyone. His kingdom is accessible to anyone. And he comes as a gracious, gentle Savior. So John was ready to hear a report and just fist pump at the reality that Jesus was going to be, you know, a report that Jesus was tough on sin and Jesus was, you know, confronting the Pharisees and Jesus was beginning to overthrow the, the Roman Empire. But rather, he gets the report, he's healing, he's teaching. So John doubts, this, this isn't what I expected. So let's consider this question for ourselves. Are, are your expectations off? Do you have a Messiah that is crafted in your own image, that, that's from your own imagination? Do you, do you gravitate towards some aspects of Jesus and like, I really like this, but ignore other aspects of Jesus? And so this is where... If we consider this, this is where our, our passage can be very encouraging to us as we, we see John wrestle with doubt. Because this is where doubt can ironically be a sign that you are actually grappling with the real Jesus of the Bible rather than the Jesus of your culture or the Jesus of your imagination. When, when Jesus doesn't fit in your boxes, when, he's, you know, when you're confused that he's not revealed, like that, that might be revealing that your expectations are off. And it's an opportunity to repent, to humble yourself, to seek to know the real Jesus as he's presented in Scripture. And so, I don't want to glorify doubt at all. I think Jesus um, moves quickly to help John out of his doubt. But I do want to say this. If you've never experienced any doubt, I would wonder if you're, you're actually encountering the Jesus of the Bible or if you're just encountering a Jesus of your own liking one that always agrees with you, one that always takes your side. But the real Jesus is going to bump up against your expectations. I love how um, C.S. Lewis depicted this in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Um, the Messiah figure in that story is Aslan the lion. And what the characters so often say about Aslan is that he's not a tame lion. He's not a tame lion. You don't, you don't get mastery over him. He has mastery over you, but he's good. So Jesus is not a tame Messiah. 
He, you won't have mastery over him. You can't put him in a box. So he's always, he's, he's not always going to be the Messiah that you expect, but he's going to be the Messiah that you need. And we find that in Scripture alone. So secondly, we see, we've seen that um, John's doubt stems from his expectations being off. Secondly, we see another element that adds to this doubt and it's that his circumstances are discouraging. He's in prison. And he's in prison because he called out the sin of King Herod. And that didn't go well for him. And so now he's locked up in prison. And we know that from the rest of John's story, his circumstances actually don't get better, but they get worse. He will eventually be executed in prison. So the point is this. Discouraging circumstances, I don't care who you are can disorient you. They can disorient you. They can make what you knew to be certain to be called into doubt. And when those moments hit, we start to believe things like this. It's like, hey, I've been devout. I've been doing good ministry. I've been morally better than like, I can make a big list of people I'm morally superior than. And my life shouldn't be going this way. Like surely a Christian won't find himself or herself in a place like this, prison. Or surely a Christian won't find himself in a place that's of financial hardship. Surely a Christian won't find himself in a cancer ward or in a divorce court. You see, this is the hard lesson. We're not promised that hard circumstances won't come our way. That's, That's not the promise, that if you follow God, hard things won't come your way. But what the promise is, is Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. He'll, he'll be with us in those moments when they come our way. And so are you in a situation like that this morning? A situation you would never want to be in? Well, we can take heart that he's with us. That's the promise of Scripture. So we've been tough on John up to this point. We've been talking about what he got wrong. So let's take a quick second to look at what he got right. So one thing he got right is that immediately when he has doubts, he takes it immediately to Jesus. He's quick to take it to Jesus. So in your doubt, don't let it linger. Don't let it sit. Take it to Jesus. Take it up to God in prayer. Seek him and see that doubt as an opportunity to grow in your faith, to know the real Jesus more deeply. And the second thing that John does right is John has friends. John has friends. I feel like this is a lost art in the modern age, just having friends, keeping friends. But you realize John can't physically go to Jesus. He's locked up. He has to have friends to take his message to Jesus for him. And so likewise, you may very well find yourself stuck in a prison of doubt or despair and you'll never, like, you'll never get out of it without the help of friends. You'll need friends to, that can help take you to Jesus, that can help point you to Jesus when you can't and when you aren't seeing clearly. And so John's situation doesn't get better in isolation. It actually gets better through friendships, friends who point him to Jesus. And so that's our call as a church, 
is to help one another, to be this kind of friends to one another, to help point one another to Jesus. And this doesn't mean that you have to have all the answers. This doesn't even mean you have to give an answer at all when someone, we're sitting with someone in their despair. You can sit with someone and you can pray with someone in their despair. And when the time comes, you can remind them of the power and beauty of the gospel. And like what greater gift can we give to one another? Like in moments of our despair, in moments when we aren't seeing clearly to help point one another back to Jesus, to help point one another back to gospel sanity. That's what the church is all about. So we've looked at John's doubt. Now let's look at Jesus' reply. Look with me in verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you, what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So we see that Jesus, um, he doesn't shame John. He doesn't scold John. He's not shocked by John's sin. He knows our frame. He knows our weakness. He remembers that we are but dust. And he's a wonderful counselor to us in moments like this. And we see that how he points John back to where John needs to look for assurance. And that's not his experience. That's not his expectations. And that's not his circumstances. What Jesus points John back to is a better look at, John, at God's word and work. See, he says, go and tell John what you hear. So that's Jesus's words. And what you see, that's Jesus's works. And that's because our, our, he knows our weak and faltering faith needs to look again and again on the word and work of God for strength and assurance. Why? Why do we need to go again and again? I think we'd all love it if like our faith operated like a, like a thermostat. Like if temperature changes, you know, things go off in our life, it just automatically kicks in. Um, if it gets too hot, it, AC kicks on, brings it down, regulates it, gets too cold, the heat comes back up. Uh, I think we'd all like it if our faith just kind of operated like that. Um, automatically kicks in, um, holds course. That'd be nice, but faith doesn't automatically do that. You have to tend your faith. You have to cultivate your faith. You have to nurture your faith. You have to keep it. Your faith is more like an old house that doesn't have heat or AC. Like you have to stockpile wood. You have to keep that wood dry. You have to be ready to throw open the windows if it gets too hot. So yes, on the one hand, faith is a free gift from God that we can't earn. We can't muster up within ourselves. But no, faith is not automatic. So Jesus counsels us, he counsels John to keep constantly looking back at his word and work. So this, again, is the call for, for church, for our church, our call as a church to make Jesus' words audible and to make Jesus' works visible to one another and to the world. Or as one commentator put it, the dynamite of, of faith for our churches is simply a more faithful exposure to Jesus' words and works. The dynamite of faith for our churches is simply a more faithful exposure 
to Jesus' words and works. And so there's so many things people could say that a church should be about. And I'm sure that there's like a lots, there's lots of important things to include on the, that list. But if faithfulness to Jesus' word and work is not the central focus, then it's failing to be the church. A church could be doing all the good works that are listed in this passage of you know, healing the blind and all that stuff. But if it is not proclaiming the good news, if it's not pointing to Jesus Christ as the only Savior of sinners, like, what's the point? And so Jesus calls John and he calls us in our sin and in our brokenness, in our doubt, to behold again and again his word and work, to stand to the side and behold the Savior and so have our, our faith nourished and strengthened. And we see also in verse 5 that Jesus, he specially frames how, how John's friends are to take the message back to John. How they were reported. He says, the blind, tell them that the blind receive their sight and the lame walk and so on and so on. And what is this? This is Jesus. He's intentionally piecing together several prophecies from Isaiah and piecing them together. He's using Isaiah's prophetic language to correctly interpret for John what, is, what he's actually doing and what he's actually accomplishing. It is Jesus' way of, of answering John's question. And like, like, look, like I am doing the things that Isaiah prophesied. I'm overturning the curse. I'm undoing the effects of the fall. So don't let your desires, don't let your expectations, don't let your circumstances determine what the Messiah should be like. Let the scriptures determine that. And behold, I'm doing it. And in verse 6, Jesus' Jesus' reply to John concludes with a beatitude. It it, it concludes with an invitation for John to respond to to, to Jesus, to, to respond to the blessing that's set on the table before him and before all of us. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The Greek word there for offend is a word that means to stumble over, to cause to fall. That is, Jesus is basically saying, blessed are you if you don't stumble over me and fall. Blessed are you if you don't throw in the towel because of me, but rather you stick with me despite the initial doubt, the initial offense that you experience. He's saying, truly happy, truly delighted are you because though my words and my work may be hard to receive at times, those who receive me receive life, receive the life that I give. Because I'm the only Savior, Jesus says, is basically saying, to miss me is to miss salvation. To stumble over me is to reject me and to reject the only hope that sinners have. So, truly happy are you if you persevere through your doubt. Um, I had Ligon Duncan as a professor of mine at, at uh, RTS Seminary in Jackson. Uh, very wise man. He's now the president of the seminary. But when he was an intern, a lowly intern, uh, as a youth minister in a church, um, a girl in his youth group uh, asked him a, a very challenging question. She said, Ligon, I'm just really struggling with the concept of hell. Like, it really bothers me. I can't get how a good God could send people there. And Ligon, you know, being a young, young guy at this point, actually had a very wise answer. He said, you know, I really struggle with that concept too. But let me ask you, who's more wise, you or God? 
And the girl said, well, God knows all things. I don't. Um, go with God on that one. He says, all right, who's holier, you or God? He says, well, God is perfect, and I sin all the time. God's holier. Who's more loving, you or God? I said, God so loved the world that he gave his son. God's more loving. And so Lincoln said, if, well, if God is more wise, more holy, more loving, don't you think you can trust him with this thing that you don't quite understand? Or in other words, blessed are you if you don't give up when you encounter something that offends you. The, the wiser advice is to doubt your doubts, to humble yourself, to not make yourself smarter or wiser or holier or more loving than God himself, but to refresh your faith by beholding the word and work of Jesus Christ. And to conclude, someone might, might say at this point, but how? How can I keep trusting? How can I keep adjusting to God and to Jesus when I hit doubts about him? Why all this me adjusting to him? When am I ever going to hear about him adjusting to me? Well, the answer is keep beholding Jesus' word and work. And you'll see that just how much he adjusted to you so that he could love you. His whole ministry was him adjusting to your needs and your weaknesses. And that's what Advent is all about. He took on flesh and blood. He took on human weakness. He went to the cross. He became your sin. He died in your place, though he had never sinned. And he gives you the perfect reward that he earned for his perfect obedience in your place. And on the third day, he rose again, proving that he conquered evil. He conquered death. He conquered sin. And so that great conquering king that John expected was so excited to see, we actually see at the resurrection that he defeated and overthrew the only true enemy that can condemn you, which is your sin and, and death. And so that's why Paul in Colossians 2 can use language that on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That is to say, Satan and any evil power has been disarmed through the cross and put to open shame because Jesus has triumphed over them. They can no longer condemn you. They can no longer shame you. They can no longer accuse you. The work of Jesus Christ has busted you out of the prison of your own doubt, of your own shame, and has brought you into his kingdom of light and glory. So why all this? Why all this Jesus adjusting to us, to you? Well, I know at least um, two families in this congregation who have recently gotten a new puppy. And so that means a lot of adjustments, right? You have to adjust to a house of not much sleep. Puppies crying at night. You have to adjust to a household that's getting chewed on a lot more. You have to adjust your schedule. You have to adjust how much you clean your carpet now. So why all this adjusting? If you ask these families, why all this adjusting? They consider it a joy. They consider it a joy to have this pet part of their family. And so they endure it all with joy so that they might have them. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, Scripture says, considered it all a joy. Everything he had to adjust to 
Everything he endured, he considered it all a joy, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us. Because through the cross, he knew he would get you. So are you in a prison of doubt or of shame this morning? The good news is behold the word and work of Jesus Christ and have your heart strengthened by the reality of his love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this portrait that um, even the greatest man struggled with doubt. And we pray that when we may reach times like that where we struggle with doubt, we struggle with despair, that you would equip us, that you would remind us of the goodness of your word, the infallibility of your promises, the goodness of friendships. Lord, we pray that you would provide for us in every way and equip us as a church to help one another and proclaim to the world the glories of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.